All right, good morning, everyone. How's it going? It's good to see you all. What's up, Blake? How are you, man? Frankie, hi. It's good to see everybody. I, um, I don't know if you were here last week or if you saw online, but I um, actually, I was just about to dive in, and then I saw Miss Debbie standing over there. Debbie, are you ready? All right, kids, if you're heading with Miss Debbie, now is the time. I want you guys to have an amazing time. And remember, your parents always want to learn something that you learned in church, so pay attention for a couple details because they're going to ask you after church, all right? All right. You guys have a great time. We'll see you soon. Um, all right. We are going to dive right in. Uh, if you were here last week or you watched online, you might remember that I made a claim that a sermon is not necessarily about uh, me making sure that everybody agrees with everything I say. That sometimes the role of a sermon is to bring irritation into the life of the people who are hearing it. And I intend to put that to the test today. That sound okay? All right, we'll see. Some of you are nervous. I'm nervous. Um, I'm not irritating just to irritate, but I think, as Mike said at the top of service, we got to talk about what's happening in our country right now. Uh, we're, we're just going to go right, right after it, because I think Jesus would talk about it. You know, I think I grew up in a church... Uh, in a way of reading the Bible where it, was, it seemed like Jesus was sort of this Yoda spiritual figure that drifted through current events but never really touched on them. That he sort of was on a different plane than everybody else and the current events swirled around him and he was talking about spiritual stuff while everybody else was... I just don't think that's the way it was. If you read the Bible really clearly, Jesus is constantly addressing what's happening in the lives of the people. He's relevant to what people are going through on a regular basis. He talked about what was happening in the world around him, and I think it's important that we do as well. I think it's important that we have a conversation about the heavy place that we are in as a country and as an American church. Uh, now, I want to be clear, though. I want to have the conversation in the appropriate way. And some of you are nervous now. You're thinking, I didn't come to church to talk politics. I've got good news for you. I didn't come to church to talk politics either. I have uh, no desire to add to the noise. I have no expertise on any of these topics politically. I don't have anything that, that, I, that I could say that would be any better than anything else you've heard out there. Uh, that said, I nevertheless want to talk about it, but in an appropriate way, in a different way. It's not our job in the church to have political conversations with political solutions, but to have spiritual conversations with supernatural solutions. And what I saw happening on the news, for me, was not just about what's happening in the nation on a political spectrum. It's also about what was happening and what is happening and has been happening really not just for weeks or months or years, but for decades in the American church. Uh, and I can say this. Now, you might say, are you an expert on the American church? I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've been in it for about 43 years now. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been around. I, I recognize as an insider what's happening in many places in the church. And I was disturbed, as many of you were, with what we saw happening in our country on Wednesday. On January 6th, which is the day of Epiphany, the day that we celebrate the moment that the Magi came to kneel at the feet of Jesus. The day that the nations came to the revelation of the light of who Jesus is. And what I saw happening in our country on January 6th was just the opposite of that. Now, I know there's all sorts of political stuff going on. I don't want to dive into it, but, but I'll tell you what I saw over and over and over again was places where division was being sort of sown, where profanities were being yelled, where, where hatred was being incited, I saw over and over again in those same settings flags that said things like Jesus saves and make America godly again and people singing worship songs, songs that I've grown up singing and I recognize them as my tradition. This didn't feel foreign to me. This felt like the tradition I grew up in. It felt like, oh yeah, I, 
I understand these people and where they're coming from. And as I sat there, though, I realized that there's a problem in the nation and that the church contributes to it. The American Evangelical Church contributes to it and, in fact, is integral to it. In other words, I say this heavily and I say this as an insider, as part of the problem, okay? I want you to know this. Were it not for the American church and the way that we have behaved in our theological systems and, and the, the ways that we have gone about discipleship or not gone about discipleship over the past decades, were it not for that, Wednesday wouldn't have happened. I think that the church was that integral to what happened that day and is continuing to happen in the division in our nation. And if we are part of the problem, then I intend for myself and my hope is for our church to be a part of the solution. Because at the end of the day, it really is a discipleship issue. It's that we have failed to take seriously, as I've said before, the lordship of Jesus over our life. We've taken seriously his saviorship, but not his lordship. Not the idea that he gets to tell me what to do. He gets to tell me how to live. He gets to tell me what to say and not to say. I saw so many Christians making such a big deal out of the First Amendment. And don't get me wrong, I appreciate that we live in a country where we can have First Amendment rights. But you know that in the kingdom of God, there is no First Amendment. There's no First Amendment in the scripture. In a monarchy like this one, our king gets to tell us, you cannot say that to brother or sister. You cannot say that to person made in my image. You are not allowed by king's orders. We have failed to take seriously the lordship of Jesus and to follow his kingdom example in our lives and it's time that we as a church confess, because if we keep going down that road, the church becomes irrelevant. I remember reading a while back in one of Dallas Willard's books that our religion, often in the Western church, is based on believing in Jesus, but not following him. We have accepted, he said, a discipleshiplessness in our Christianity. That's a long word with lots of endings that don't make any sense. But what he's saying is we just don't follow. We don't have any intention of doing the things that he did or living out the things he told us to do. We, we think it's enough to believe in him. As I said last week, that doesn't make us any different than any other spiritual power out there. They all believe in him. They know who he is. The question is, are we going to do what he told us to do? And the tragic irony, of course, in what I'm suggesting here, that the church has been integral in the problems that we're facing as a nation, is that the church was intended to be you know, I heard so many people use the words of the Capitol building that it's a bastion of democracy. Sounds really beautiful and really right, maybe, I don't know. But the church was intended to be a bastion of unity that works for the good of the city that we find ourselves in. And if what I'm suggesting is true, and we can debate this, and I'm happy to have that conversation over a cup of coffee if you want to. But if what I'm suggesting is true, that the church has been integral to the problem, then we who were intended to be a bastion of unity have become instead sowers of division, working against the good of the city and the nation in which we were placed. And worse than that, working against the reputation of our king and his kingdom. I was devastated with the thought as I saw these images on the news of people singing worship songs and spewing hate at the same time pledging allegiance to multiple lords at the same time. I was devastated by the concept that many will be turned away from Jesus because of this. Many. I can't imagine a single person anywhere in the world looking at that and saying, I want to know who that Jesus is. I can't be okay with it. It's got to change. 
and we're the people that change it. If we're integral to the problem, then we will be integral to the solution. It's not a political solution. Don't get me wrong. I think there are, there are definitely political solutions that have to happen. I'm just not the guy to, to, to come up with them. I don't know what the solutions are. I'm just going to be candid with you. I don't know what the road ahead is. And if I had an opinion on it, I do have opinion. It doesn't matter in this place. There are political solutions. We ought to pray for the people who are coming up with those solutions, that they would be led by God's wisdom. We ought to pray that God would place Christians, kingdom people, in positions of power that can lead those conversations. And if that's you, if you're called into that sphere, step in with your whole heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference. That's not what we do, though, in this place. In this place, we don't talk about political solutions. We talk about supernatural solutions about how we, by the power of the Spirit of God, don't try to look at what's happening out there at them. I love how Mike led us. It's not about them. It's about me and my heart. It's about the fact that I haven't been a disciple of Jesus the way I should have, and I haven't done a great job in leading a church to, and we've got to do better. Got to do better. Pragmatic steps have to happen for sure, but that's not our job in this place. Our job in this place is not to build a more perfect union it's to participate with Jesus in building his kingdom. Our job is not to reform the reputation of our nation. It's to safeguard and showcase the glory of our king and his kingdom. And if we settle for political conversations, look, if we in this place descend into all of the conversations that everybody else is having in the ways that everybody else is having, we will be shooting far too low and we will continue to contribute to the problem. We're not going to aim for political conversations. Instead, we want to be a church of a different kind. You see, the solution to the problem of what I saw in the church on the right of our nation is not a church on the left. I've seen the church on the left, too, and there's a major discipleship problem there as well. Major issues there as well. And the, the, you know what? The, the solution is also not a church right down the middle or somewhere in between. The solution is a church of an entirely different kind, empowered by an entirely different motivation, a different power, a different source of life. Solution is a church that has disentangled itself from the political spectrum entirely to the point that people aren't entirely sure what to do with us so that we can then speak in redemptively to it. Look, to have a prophetic voice into something, you can't be mired down in it. You have to be able to disentangle so you can speak back into it. The solution here is a community of people who take seriously the lordship of Jesus and who, with all of our hearts, want to go after him and his kingdom. We want to see it happen here on earth as in heaven, and we are willing to let it begin with us. And that's what we're talking about today. That's why the church exists. It's why this church exists, and we're going to learn how to do it more and more. We're here to learn the way of Jesus, the way of our King, and it's a good thing we're in the book of Philippians right now, because that's what this book is all about. That's what we talked about last week. Paul says to live worthy lives as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so in response to, that was all set up, in response to the divisions that we're seeing in our nation right now, and in response to the divisions in the church, and in response to the discipleship issue that I believe is at the core of all of it. Would you listen to the word of the Lord out of the book of Philippians, chapter 2? Paul says this. Let me get there. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others as better than yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this might sound like an overblown claim, but the solution to the problems we are facing in our nation and in our church are in that passage right now. The solution, Paul says, is we need to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That phrase in Greek literally says, Have in you the same mind that is in Christ. And that mindset he defines with a single word, humility. And it's lacking everywhere. There is a widespread humility shortage. You're worried about toilet paper and hand sanitizer. That's not our issue. The issue is we have a shortage of humility. And if we can all learn it in this place, have it be for our church, the defining attribute. As Paul says, it was the defining attribute of Jesus. You can say all sorts of stuff that Jesus was. But Paul says if you want to look at his life in whole, the whole scope of it, from his divinity to his humanity, the defining feature is humility. And that changes everything. And that's when I say discipleship, becoming like Jesus, then that's it. If that's his defining feature, then that has to be ours. We have no choice in the matter. And it starts here with this great chain of things that Paul says, if you have any, if you have any, any encouragement from being united with Christ. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but the setup is important. In other words, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Okay, so you were outside of God, far away from his family, and in Christ he has brought you near. And now the way Jesus talks about it is you are one with him as he is one with the Father. You have been united with his life, given his life force, his power, his, his presence in your life. You have been brought into the family of God, part of the story of God. If you have any encouragement from that, if you have any comfort from his love, if you are touched at all, Moved at all by the fact that God loves you. That God loves you. Not just somebody out there. Lots of people would be happy if they just knew somebody loved them. God loves you. That's an astounding thought. There's this old poem that, uh, I think it's a hymn that I really love. It's called The Love of God. And it says, it's kind of old language, so bear with me. But it says, if we, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the sky of parchment made? Were every, uh, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't that beautiful? If you have any comfort from the fact that you are the recipient of all of that, Paul is saying, 
all of the love of God that, that, that could fill oceans and fill skies, if you have any comfort from that, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit. Now, he doesn't just mean common sharing with one another, though he does, as we'll talk about in a second. He also means common sharing in the Spirit with Jesus. The Bible makes this clear. The same Spirit that operated in him is in you. You share the Spirit of Christ with Jesus. If you have any tenderness and compassion, the word tenderness doesn't just mean good feelings. It means like inward drive, and compassion means outward expression. So if you have any inward drive that, that you want to see expressed outward, if any of this is true of you, in other words, if you have experienced Jesus at all, if you know him at all in any way, if he's stepped into your life and, and changed you and saved you and redeemed you, then it is now incumbent upon you it is now no longer optional that you pursue unity with others who have the same story. Because you are in Christ. You're part of his body. And I wonder, as I was thinking about this, I wonder if part of the problem is all of that, that, that if you have any list. Like, I wonder if we just have gotten so familiar with it that it doesn't actually blow us away anymore. Do you know what I mean? Because what I just said is pretty remarkable if it's all true. And I know we sing it in songs all the time and we teach it to our kids. And so by the time you get to be my age, you've heard it millions of times. But, but as I was sitting here this weekend thinking, man, if all of that's true, well then, yeah, the only natural response is what Paul says next. But, but we got to really ground ourselves in the truth of this. It's amazing that he has invited us into his life. It's amazing that he loves us. It's amazing that we have a common sharing in the spirit that he will enable to overflow from, from feeling to action. This is amazing what he's invited us into and let us never lose the wonder of it. God forbid that I find him so familiar that I think of him as less than who he is. Let's start there. If you have any of these things, if you've experienced him in, at all, then you have an obligation. Yes, I said an obligation. In church, we like to talk about invitations. And yes, there is, it is invitational here, but remember who's inviting you. When a king invites, it's not something you consider whether or not I'm going to go. When a king invites, it's an obligation. You have an obligation to unity, to pursue it with everything you've got. And that is what he says. If you have any of these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, being one in spirit and of one mind. And what mind is that? Who gets to set that course? Who gets to define the opinion? He says, have the same mindset as Christ. That mind that governs us is his. We are the body, but he is the head. He makes us move to the impulse of his will and the rhythms of his love. So that mind of Christ, then, is what governs us to access it. The way into it is humility. Paul says the opposite of it is something he calls here, I love this, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is a pretty good translation of what's happening there. It just means everybody doing their own thing, which by the way is the American story. That's the Western story. That is postmodern culture in a nutshell, that you are the head. You are the one who makes the decisions for your life and your future, and the best good, the highest good you can pursue in your life is your story lived out well. Live your best life now. Live your truth, whatever it is. Those are the mantras that get people on their feet cheering nowadays. 
And it could not be further from the kingdom. Paul says, look, do nothing with that mindset. Nothing out of selfish ambition, because if everybody, Tower of Babel teaches us this, if everybody does their own thing, we can't build anything. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And that selfish ambition, he says, is a root cause, or is, is, a, is a fruit. The root is what he calls a vain conceit. It's a decent translation, but the, the literal translation is empty glory or glory emptiness. Where does selfish ambition come from? Real simple, and this is like, this is like basics. It comes from the feeling that you're not enough. I am glory empty. Therefore, I need to do things to be full. Selfish ambition, glory empty. You just see it all over the place. This sense of inadequacy that leads us into all kinds of sin. That's Genesis 3. The serpent comes to him and says, hey, did God really tell you not to do this? First thing he does is question the goodness of God. But immediately after that, because he knew that if you, knew, if you ate of this tree, you'd be like him. So the second thing then the serpent does, he gets you to doubt the goodness of self who was made in the image of God. You're not enough. And that feeling of not enoughness leads to sin. It leads to grasping at alternatives. It leads to finding something outside of the lordship of Jesus, outside of God's will. I'm glory empty. I need something to fill me. Paul says, okay, nothing. Do nothing in those ways. Don't come from a place of emptiness, and don't, out of that place of emptiness, strive to build your own kingdom. It won't work. It will result in everything we're seeing today. I don't want to be oversimplifying what's happening, but I'm going to. At the end of the day, everything we've seen in our nation, on the right and on the left and everywhere else, the mess that we're seeing right now comes down to two things, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition and glory emptiness. And it can't be that way here. Instead, Paul says, in humility, and here's, the, here's the, big, the big aha moment, consider others as better than yourselves. Whew. What if that was it? I mean, I'd, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. What if we just did that one thing? Each of us looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. What if every person among us had that mentality? I come into this not for what's in it for me, but for what I can give. Because that's the mind of Christ. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here was the mind of Christ. Being in very nature God, he did not start from a place of glory emptiness. He started from a place of fullness. And from a place of fullness, look, look, here's how this works. If you start empty, you're always going to be looking to fill yourself. If you start full, you have no problem emptying yourself. He starts full. He knows who he is. Remember when he washed the disciples' feet? Remember what Matthew says or right before that? Matthew, am I getting this right? could be John. I'm all over the place. Anyway, it says, knowing that he had all authority in heaven and earth, and knowing that he was returning, had come from the Father and was returning to the Father, he took off his robe and began to wash their feet. It starts from a place of fullness. The mind of Christ is a full mind. It's a gloryful mind, and you have it. Look, you're made in the image of God. You are filled with his spirit. He is through Jesus and his Holy Spirit renewing that image in you day by day. You have nothing to strive for. You literally have it all. Now, what did Jesus do with it? He emptied himself. 
he exercised all of his power in a downward trajectory. When everybody else in the world is trying to climb the ladder, and I mean everyone else in the world, you know that humility is used uh, almost 300 times, that word is used in the New Testament, and almost every time it's used, it's used in a positive light, like we're talking about it here. Do you know it's used hundreds of times outside of the New Testament in Greek literature? And every time it's negative. Every time it's what slaves and servants do. They debase themselves. They humiliate themselves. They are lowly. And only in the gospel is this reversed and said, yeah, that's the way it ought to be. You don't need to climb. It's the same in our culture today. It's the same in our culture today. Humility. We give lip service to it because we think we're supposed to, but nobody really wants it. Do you know where the word comes from in English? Humus. Dirt. Dirt. Which is appropriate. We're dirt people. That's how he made us. He makes us out of the dirt, and then he fills us with his glory. He fills us with his image. So it's appropriate then that we're aware of, our, of who we are. And that we live according, yeah. We call him Adam all the time. You know what his real name was? Dusty. Clay, I don't know. You pick, you pick your name. Let's just be aware of who we are. And the great thing is if you have that perspective, not that I am dirt, but that I am, I am a person crafted from the ground, filled with the glory of God, then you have nothing you need to strive for. Nothing you need to attain. You've got it all already. It doesn't get any better than that. And the great thing is, you know, of course, if you pour, like, stuff, to keep this family friendly, stuff on the dirt, what does it do with it? Makes it fertilizer. Makes stuff grow. You don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to take every insult personally. We can just grow through it. Turn that stuff into life. We exercise our power for our downward trajectory. Jesus was the most downwardly mobile king who ever was. He started as high as you can possibly be, and then was born, born, period, then went lower than that, and throughout his life ended up on a cross. He went the wrong direction, and in doing so, saved the world. And now we have a whole bunch of people who are going the right direction, and in doing so, are ruining the world. Solutions don't work. The way of Jesus works. And the way of Jesus is simply this. He exercised all of his power in order to serve. That's what humility means. Exercised it to serve. He became obedient to the will of God and gave everything he had for the sake of those around him. And in doing so, he changed the world. And I just think, now, we got to talk about what this means, like practically, nuts and bolts, okay? And this is something that keeps me awake at night and I've been praying about. What does it mean for us as a church? to become a people who are serious about discipleship to Jesus. This is a conversation I intend for us to have and to begin to move forward in together in practical ways. Rhythms of life that get us in the flow of, of his kingdom. Ways of thinking differently about what's happening in the world. I intend to have these conversations, but I got to start here. For today, it means let's really take seriously the call to humility. To embodying in ourselves the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And if we can do that, I'm not going to have some grandiose claim that we're going to heal every wound in our nation. 
but will become a part of the healing that God wants to bring. And Jesus will be seen to be glorious and beautiful in this place. And many will find hope and freedom through him here. And in so doing, we'll start to be a part of the solution. That's what we want. A church that is so filled with God's glory, passionate about the way of Jesus, overwhelmed at the privilege of his love for us, overflowing with his presence and his power that we share with Jesus, tender, compassionate, and it all starts with humility. So, I just want to I want to start there today. Mike led us beautifully at the beginning of the service with just a time of introspection because it starts with us. We all, the, the great thing about this word is it, it convicts all of us equally. There's none of us that can just look across the aisle and say, oh yeah, I hope so-and-so is hearing this. A word like this starts here in our hearts. So let's just for a couple seconds, we're going we're gonna to worship together in a few seconds, but let's for, for a couple seconds again take a posture of quiet and invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. To speak gently and lovingly, and if, if you're hearing condemnation or shame, it's not the Holy Spirit, but to speak gently and lovingly into your heart and your story and see places where maybe there is selfish ambition or vain conceit, places he wants to replace with his humility, his love. Maybe places where you're feeling glory empty, you're feeling inadequate, where he wants to show you you have everything you need. I have given you I am standing here with hands open, giving you more than you could possibly imagine. Just receive. Stop striving and receive. Just start there. The Bible is really clear. If we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's humble ourselves in this place, whatever that looks like. If that means getting on your knees, then get on your knees. If that means finding a space apart for a few minutes to have a conversation with Jesus do that. If that means, I know it's all tricky during COVID, but if that means that there's somebody here you need to ask for forgiveness from, or a phone call you need to make, where you realize there's a relationship where you've been so desperate to be right, and it's not about being right. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on, let's just begin this journey with one small yes in this moment.